TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. HBR presents... Welcome, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm me here. I'm Rowie. And I'm Felix. Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing okay. Hanging in there. I got to say, there's like a lot of snow, and I'm feeling a little bit of the midwinter blues. <laughs> oh, already? Yeah, well, yeah. you have any ways to get through the midwinter blues? <laughs> I have a very simple recipe, which probably has to do with the place where I grew up, and that is melting cheese. Hmm. Could be fondue, could be raclette. <laughs> any ah. form of melted cheese will... Winter blues be gone. Yeah, that is good. I like that. Yeah. And of course, there's some wine in that fondue as well. <laughs> that is true. Yes. That's fantastic. Okay, Rawi, what's your recipe? So I like to cook Asian food mostly. And so things that are very comforting are like sundubu jjigae, the Korean soup with tofu and a bit of gochujang that's spicy. It's super easy to make. Nice. So very true. Yes. warm, yeah. refreshing yeah. feeling. Then also like pad thai. Mm. Yeah. Like how could you not be cheered up by <laughs> a big bowl yes. of pad What's thai? Wrong so <laughs> comfort food. This yeah. is good. I like this. Okay, good. So fondue and a little pad thai. I can do and that. And how about you, Mihir? Do you have a recipe? So I feel so rudimentary, but I've been doing a lot of baking. And so a new ginger molasses cookie recipe is nice. bringing Ooh. down the house. And so <laughs> it is comforting. And now mm-hmm. I basically make a lot of dough and then I just bake them on demand. So you freeze it? Uh, freeze it or refrigerate, yeah. And just six cookies at a time. Yeah. And then you mm-hmm. eat them mm-hmm. when they're still piping hot. I mean, oh, it's nice. not the high road because you're just catering to kids who want the mushy <laughs> cookie batter. But yeah. I'm not above that. Yeah, no, nothing no. wrong We're with not above pandering. Yeah, we're like not above pandering. Everybody exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I kind of wanted to talk to you both about this $1.9 trillion bill that Biden is proposing and now working its way through Congress. Mm -hmm. And it's a big monster of a bill. And get your sense of whether this is enough, too much. It's really sparked an interesting debate. So I'd love to talk to you guys about that. Absolutely. I would love to talk about that. It's certainly timely. Mm -hmm. I would like to talk about what it means to live with Brexit, Mm. what it means for the world, and what it might mean in the short term, what it might mean in the longer term. So really just to take stock of this big geopolitical moment from four and a half years ago that's now come to fruition. Those sound great. Sounds great. Okay, so we're 12 months into the pandemic, 
And in the United States, we're about to do a third big piece of legislation oriented around the economy, not the epidemiological concerns, but the economic concerns that have come out of COVID. And this most recent bill is around $1.9 trillion, but it's also sparked a real debate about whether it's big enough or too big. And I'm really curious to get your sense of it. So just to give you some sense of what's happened so far, the United States has already infused roughly $4 trillion, depending on how you count it, over the last 12 months in previous legislation. And it went in a variety of ways and ways we talked about previously in the program. Mm -hmm. The new bill is an additional $1.9 trillion. And you can kind of think about that in a couple of big buckets, just for our purposes. There's a big bucket that's all about getting more money to state and local governments and doing some vaccination stuff and COVID-specific stuff. But it's a big number, and it's around $750 billion of that kind of stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff that is really oriented towards getting money to families. And in particular, there's a stimulus check. We've already done two stimulus checks, totaling around $1,800. This would be an additional stimulus check of around $1,400. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, we're going to do some new child credits, which is going to help families with children beyond certain income levels. The third bucket is really about helping folks who are really in need. And specifically, the trigger for all this is unemployment insurance, which is expiring. And the kind of extra unemployment insurance is expiring. And so we're going to do around 400 of that. There's 600 billion for the families via the credits and the stimulus checks. There's around 400 billion on unemployment insurance and other stuff. And then there's around 150 of other stuff, small business kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is. Now, the question is, is it right for this moment? We're 12 months in, vaccinations are happening. Is it either not enough, given the suffering that is going on in the country and around the world? Or is it too much, given that the vaccine's coming around? Mm -hmm. And last thing about this is every country is struggling with a similar situation. In fact, some people in the EU are looking at what the US is doing and asking whether they should do that or if they have appetite for something this big. So, Ravi, I'm just curious, what do you make of all this? So, Mihir, I'm really glad you brought up the comparative context. Mm -hmm. One of the really interesting things to me is that there's size of the stimulus overall, but then there's also the character of it and whether it's focused on getting money to individuals or whether it's focused on supporting firms and protecting payroll. Right. And so just one little example is that overall Germany has spent less money as a share of GDP, as a share of output than the United States has on direct fiscal stimulus going to individuals and households. Mm -hmm. But when you look at what a country like Germany has done in terms of indirect stimulus, so things like protecting payroll. So in the United States, what we call the payroll protection program, providing liquidity to firms. Germany has spent 38% of GDP on that activity. Mm -hmm. Whereas the United States so far has done about two and a half percent of GDP on the sort of protecting of firms as opposed to giving payments to individuals and households. Mm -hmm. So very different approaches if we think about the overall size, but also the consequences. And so because what we did in the United States was mostly not to keep firms in business, we've been managing the aftermath, which is people who have become unemployed because the firms went out of business. Right. And so now, because the United States chose that path, we need to ask, now that we're on that path, is this the right way to respond to the current difficulties we have? 
That's such an interesting way to think about the problem, Rawi. And I think it speaks directly to the three components that Mihir mentioned to begin with. So should we support vaccination? Should we support the transformation of schools into safer places so that kids can go to school? I think the COVID part of the package feels exactly right. Yeah. And then, as you point out, in comparison to Germany, the $400 billion in unemployment benefits, that's the consequence of how we're trying to help. I think the most questionable part of the program is really the direct stimulus checks, the $1,400. Mm-hmm. In particular, because they're not very well targeted. Yeah. So obviously, we don't know what exactly the legislation will look like, but the kinds of income thresholds that people are talking about, it includes people who have essentially had no change in their life because their job is still here, they were able to work from home, their income hasn't changed, and now we're paying $1,400, but Mm -hmm. it adds up to roughly $600 billion. Yeah. And just to be clear, I mean, those $1,400 checks are going to families sometimes with income above $100,000 as a family. And so then we're really into a different world of targeting. I mean, I think, Felix, you're exactly right that... There are parts that are no-brainers, right? Like more money mm-hmm. to open up schools, more money for to kind of get the vaccine out. But it's bundled with so many other things that are complicated and problematic. And, you know, in particular, it's worthwhile just stepping back a little, right? So we remember the springtime and we remember this really dramatic drop in output. But if you go through the rest of the year, well, we're at a point now where the economy has shrunk maybe two and a half percent over the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. And we have already replaced lost household income several times over through these payments. And so it's now coming to the point where you really have to question. And part of what's interesting to me about this is anybody who questions it is kind of viewed as not being on board the train, you know, (laughs) which is we have to spend money. But it feels grossly kind of badly targeted. For example, state and local governments are getting four or five hundred billion dollars as part of this package. And revenues at the state and local level have been pretty okay, surprisingly, right? And the really big puzzle is, of course, savings have gone up so much. Mm -hmm. And the really big part of this that we have to really struggle with is private savings are up by like $1 to $2 trillion, $1.6 trillion, which just means that there's a lot of money that people aren't spending. And the reason they're not spending it is, no surprise, there's a pandemic on, (laughs) and so it's hard to spend money. (laughs) And so... You write more checks, and then where does it go? Well, if it's properly targeted, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But if it's not, you kind of get more money in the bank. And then the real concern, I think, is coming out of this, there will just be a boom of spending. And then we get into concerns about inflation and everything else that we might be worried about. Mm -hmm. So it feels a little bit like we're going big, but we're not sure why we're going big anymore. And to kind of call it into question is somehow viewed as being heretical. And that's kind of what worries me a little bit about all this. Well, I think that one of the challenges is we know that we have had so far a very uneven economic recovery, which will continue to be uneven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was looking at some data, which are really interesting. For high-wage workers, and this is defined in this study as above $60,000, employment is back to where it was before the pandemic. Yeah. For middle-wage workers, this was between $27,000 and $60,000. We're at about minus 6 minus 7% compared to before the pandemic. 
And for low-wage workers below $27,000, we're at minus 20% before the pandemic compared to like overall employment. Yeah. So I think that there's no question there are millions of people who are continuing to suffer as a result of the slowdown. And GDP growth is not going to capture that, right? Neither mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. GDP decline yeah. nor the growth because it's the unevenness exactly. that's really the problem. That's right. And so I think the question is, how can we make sure that we're helping the people who need the help the most? Mm -hmm. And is there a way to write the legislation so that it's targeted enough? Or do we have to just accommodate the fact that we're going to send some checks to some people who don't need it just so we make sure that we send checks to people who definitely, definitely do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think this is exactly the right question, Rawi. And my first intuition, I think like most people's first intuition was sending a $1,400 check to someone who still has his or her job and is making more than $100,000 just makes no sense whatsoever. And I was trying to think if I wanted to make an argument that this is the right thing to do, what could the argument be? And I have two ideas. Mm -hmm. The big part that we don't see in unemployment and that we don't see in just looking at employment statistics is that the labor force participation rate has fallen dramatically. Yeah, right. And it's fallen dramatically among women because yeah, women absolutely. disproportionately are responsible for what happens in the household. Yeah. So it is really stunning. In 2000, we had a labor participation rate of 67%. We're now down at 61%. The last time we were at 61% was in the 1970s. Yeah. And so you can make an argument that, yes, you're not unemployed because you're not actually looking for a job, which is our common definition of unemployment. But still, the family has enormous resources that you used to bring in and they're now missing. And part of the check is what we're replacing. And the second argument that I was thinking of is so many people, I think both liberals and conservatives, have a hard time seeing that the government cares about them, that the government can do anything that would help them out. Mm -hmm. Given this state of affairs, yeah. sending a pretty dramatic signal and erring on the side of being too generous politically doesn't strike me as the completely wrong thing to do. Yeah, I buy both those arguments, but I think I come out a little bit more with Rawi, which is I think this is just a symptom of our inability to kind of get money to very poor people effectively. Yeah. And so the price we pay is we have this grossly inefficient system, which is going to spend a lot of money in a lot of places where it's not going to make a ton of sense. So even, for example, on UI and unemployment insurance, if we had a better functioning unemployment insurance system that was well-funded at the beginning of all this, yeah. we wouldn't have been writing stimulus checks all over the place because we would mm -hmm. feel more comfortable about the idea <laughs> right. that our social safety net was working. So this to me is the pathology, which is the pathology is we have mm -hmm. a relatively weak, well, quite weak social safety net for the worst off in the economy. And what we end up doing to compensate for that are these really messy bills, which spend a lot of money potentially to people who don't need it. And that feels wrong in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have gotten to the point where we can't contest that idea, especially on the left, that we can't contest the idea that, wait a second, this is a little bit crazy and a little bit irresponsible, and maybe we should be doing targeting better. Mm -hmm. And to do so is heretical. Like in the way Republicans had this pathology to question tax cuts was heretical. And now there's a similar pathology mm -hmm. among Democrats, which is to question spending 
is heretical. Mm -hmm. There's no mm -hmm. big infrastructure plan in here. There's no big kind of spending that we would want to see. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's a bunch of stuff that, I don't know, it doesn't feel like it makes sense. But to question it somehow is wrong. So Mihir, can I ask you, what's the downside? We talked a little bit about the good that we're trying to do. Yep. And, you know, maybe we're really successful or not so successful. Right. In knowing something about whether the plan is too big or not, we also need to think about, say, if it is too big. Like, yep. what are the costs? I mean, I think there's really two. One is the concern that the economy, which has all this built-up savings, as I mentioned, you know, we have a lot more savings. Mm -hmm. People aren't spending. Why? Because they can't, even can't. if they did want to. Mm -hmm. And so we come out of this and we end up with a big burst of spending that ends up triggering not just output gains, but inflationary kinds of gains. That's the first piece, which would then lead to potentially higher interest rates and then potentially creating problems for the recovery that we would want to come see out of this. And then the second and related concern is it's real money and it stops our ability and limits our borrowing capacity in the future because it's 1.9 trillion that you can't potentially spend later. Mm -hmm. With this amount of deficit spending, we're going to be at obviously record high levels of debt relative to GDP. And the amount of room that we have to do that in the future is going to be compromised. Now, the counter to that is, well, wait a second, we've been worrying about that problem of fiscal space for so long, and it never materializes, so don't even think about it. But I guess I'm old-fashioned enough to really worry about those two <laughs> problems. <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out that there's already another stimulus that's vastly bigger than the $1.9 trillion that we're talking about on the fiscal side. Yeah. So we have seen a lot of balance sheet activity by the central bank, by the Federal Reserve. It's grown its balance sheet as a kind of monetary stimulus, especially targeted at the financial sector. Yep. And so compared to 2006, the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet before the pandemic was about five times bigger. Yeah. And since the pandemic, it's about eight and a half times bigger. Yeah. So that's many trillions of dollars. And so I wonder whether we're worried about the inflationary effects of a fiscal stimulus that's actually a lot smaller than the potential inflationary effects of the monetary stimulus. But isn't one of the big lessons from the 2008-2009 recession is that we didn't do enough. And because we didn't do enough, it was exactly the weakest parts of the economy where it took such a long time Fair for enough. workers to find their way back into the economy. It took such a long time for wages to rise. But just to be clear about the magnitudes, Felix, we did maybe $800 billion in stimulus in 2008. We've already done four or five times that. We're talking about doing another three times that. And we're talking about an economic event, which is very different, meaning it was a very, very sudden stop kind of happening in the spring and then a recovery. But this is, in a way, I would go the other way, Felix, which is we've overlearned that lesson. <laughs> I mean, there's still 10 million people who are unemployed, and then we have this big change in labor market participation. So mm -hmm. when people talk about the output gap, what's the difference between how well the economy does today and how well could the economy do without creating really severe inflation pressures? In a way, that doesn't really capture the reality because we have so many people who are on the sidelines. And it's exactly not the part of the workforce that is easy to integrate, where we know sure. it's going to come late, yeah. where we know it's going to take maybe some people who need to get training, education. Yeah. It's not going to be today and tomorrow. I was just going to say, but 
I totally get it, Felix. There's a lot of unemployed people, but writing more checks to people to have them put it in their bank account until they can spend is not going to solve that problem. Getting COVID under control, getting the vaccine out is going to solve that problem. And so that's the sense in which I get the UI and I get wanting to help the people who are unemployed. But these broader efforts, it doesn't feel like it addresses it because it's not addressing the underlying problem, which is people aren't yeah. spending. Because they can't. Because they can't. <laughs> okay, well, so I think we're going to keep talking about it because I imagine we're going to see the effects of this for a while. Yes. Yeah. So more to come on this topic, I'm sure. For sure. So, Ravi, you wanted to talk about Brexit. We've already solved the $1.9 trillion stimulus thing, so <laughs> let's solve Brexit too. Yeah, so this has been a long time coming. And for the past four and a half years, we have been anticipating and wondering what it would look like, what it would mean. And I just want to bring up a few of the early problems that have occurred. Some of them have to do with cross-border movement of goods and the management of supply chains. Because these are new real borders now with customs processes that are often quite complicated. Mm -hmm. Firms that used to do all their business in Europe from the United Kingdom and they've had that disrupted and they've been unable to either get intermediate goods or send their final goods across. Mm -hmm. All sorts of interesting questions about cross-border movements of capital and whether London can remain the financial capital of Europe in a context in which that country resides, as it were, outside of the European Union. Mm -hmm. So people as well, their expectations that students from Europe who go to university and higher education in the United Kingdom might be down by two thirds <laughs> compared to previous years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the question I'd like to ask you is, what is the Brexit really all about? And do you think there's going to come a moment of great regret in the United Kingdom for the fact of it. So to go back, I think, to the beginning, Rawi, I think one of the puzzles about the Brexit debates has been, it's been largely an economic debate about trade and job losses. And I don't think it was ever really an economic decision in the sense that I think it was about fear and control. Mm -hmm. So there was a fear of what was happening in the world, having to do with either some form of globalization, some sense that our power is being taken away, some sense of fear about immigration, and it all coalesced into this move to take back control, whatever that means. And in some grand populist moment, I think that's what happened. Now, the debate around it has been kind of dressed up as being economic, but I don't know if the underlying motivations really were. And mm -hmm. similarly, the people against it similarly were motivated by the idea of belonging to the European Union and being globalist and all those ideas. I don't think the people who voted for it voted for it because they thought it would be better economically. And so when you ask yourself, will there be people reconsidering? I think they're going to come face to face with economic costs, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure it's going to make them reconsider because I'm not sure it ever was an economic argument. Interesting. Felix, what do you think? Maybe my first impression is that, at least in a historical sense, it's a big success. Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking of is there are not too many examples where you have not exactly a super state, but very close ties. Mm -hmm. And where some part of a state can say, and you know, we used to think this is a great idea, <laughs> and now we changed our minds, and we're leaving. Sure. Yeah. And the usual pattern is there's war. Mm -hmm. There are very few examples. It, it's always, which is also true for the EU, there are yeah. a million rules how you can enter the EU. Yeah. 
And then it was basically pretty unclear how you leave. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know about the economic consequences, but at least it's a success in the sense that an entity was able to leave and it did not take civil unrest or war or anything like that. Now, the fact that it took so long was obviously costly. So business investment in the UK, I think in response to the uncertainty, really. Yeah. The uncertainty, I think, so far is the part that was costliest to the UK economy. But now that the uncertainty is out of the way, my sense is that maybe many of the costs that we see right now are adjustment costs that will go away over time. This is what the UK government calls teething problems of <laughs> the firms are facing. Yes, it's funny to me because if you're inside the union, right, it was always, well, maybe this is a continental attitude, But it was always like, oh, the UK exports. No, you're not exporting. You're selling within a trade (laughs) union. That's not called exports. (laughs) And now you're finding out, oh, if you actually export, that is a completely different process. And it involves paperwork and it's slow and expensive and all of these other things. But for every one firm that now finds it difficult to export products to the continent. There are, of course, European firms that find it difficult to export to the UK. All of this obviously comes at the cost of consumers. But in terms of how dramatic these consequences are going to be, I do agree. Many of these things are teething issues. Well, but I think that's the hard part to know, Felix, right? And Rawi, right? Because I mean, here's (laughs) the other puzzle about all this, which is first, it's happening amidst COVID. And so, you know, to really understand (laughs) its impact is almost impossible. The second part that I think is really interesting to me is it's sold as a free trade deal, but of course it's free in one sense, but very costly in another. This is a world mm-hmm. of you know non-tariff barriers and there's going to be significant ones. And then it could be teething pains, but the clear thing to me feels like it's going to impact small and medium enterprise in a way that it's not going to impact larger firms. Yep. There are fixed costs with dealing with this regime and it's going to be hard. <laughs> and those are going to be borne disproportionately by certain types of firms, and in particular agriculture, but other kinds of areas. Yeah. And then the final thing is, of course, services is not even covered by any of this stuff, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and so it's kind of been sold as this big free trade deal, but on services, finance in particular, but the higher education stuff you talked about, Rawi, I think that's enormously important over the long run. And so I wonder... Yes, people will characterize it as teething pain or not. The reality is disentangling these effects was always going to be hard. But in COVID, (laughs) you can forget about it. (laughs) And so there's going to become an article of faith very quickly about whether this was something that was good for the UK or bad for the UK, because the economic data is going to be so murky and so hard to really identify. I think the other piece of it that I think is also just fascinating to me is what's going to happen to this thing called the United Kingdom? For sure. What's going to happen to Scotland? What's going to happen to the whole identity of the country? And I don't think anybody fully appreciated the Pandora's box on that dimension that was going to be opened up with Brexit because of Ireland and because of Scotland. And that seems like an even larger thing that has yet to fully play out. But let's talk about London and financial services a little bit, and maybe London in two ways. One is it's well known that London voted overwhelmingly to remain, Mm -hmm. but London stands to be perhaps the biggest loser from the Brexit because it's a financial capital and it was most resistant to the idea of leaving. Mm. So 
Where do we imagine London as a financial center five years from now, 10 years from now? So I think it's a great question. And I think two things seem clear, which is I think it'll be somewhat atrophied, but still basically intact. Mm -hmm. First, I can see activity moving to Amsterdam and I can see other places in Europe benefiting. But I've always felt that London's position is relatively secure because of the inability to imagine any of those other places as serious replacements, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is not to say that they're not wonderful cities, but do mm -hmm. they have all the ingredients it would take to really build up? So you'll see some activity migrate into different places, but a wholesale replacement I don't think is happening. It's interesting to think that part of what might happen is actually New York will win and Hong Kong and Tokyo will win as opposed to Amsterdam or Paris, which I think is mm -hmm. one of the more likely consequences. The large chunk of wealth that is being managed out of there. I think will remain for all the reasons it has accumulated there to begin with. And that I think is relatively intact, but it won't be the massive force that it was over the last two decades. Now, maybe that's okay. Maybe it was a hyper period of financialization of London and mm -hmm. we may not mind it so much. And certainly many people in the UK might feel like that, which is the dominance of the city will recede a little bit. And that could be okay for the larger country. But I don't see it falling apart. I just don't see it also yeah. being a vibrant place that it has been as well. It's an interesting point, like take back control and maybe also take back London from finance. <laughs> <Right. laughs> but Felix, right. what do you think? Yes. The last point that you made me hear about the relative importance of London, I think is something that we really need to keep in mind. So financial services in the UK are 7% of GDP manufacturing is 17%. Right. So even in relative terms, London is so visible, it's so unique, it's so different, and then the focus goes on financial services very quickly. And it's definitely important in the sense that it's one of the main exports of the country. But mm -hmm. when you think about employment, when you think about the size of the sector, it's not quite as critical as one might think. And then this is uh, close to my heart. We have a little experiment. So Switzerland lost the right to equivalence in 2014. Mm -hmm. And there was this moment where everybody thought, oh my God, the Swiss financial market, but that's the end of it and right. what will happen. And yep. in a way, even though it was pre-COVID, Mihir, it's so difficult to know. Right. Mm -hmm. Switzerland has had many referendums whether we should join the European Union. And they always end in a no situation. And in particular, the early ones, it felt like, oh, my God, we're making such a big decision. And in a way, it's true. These are big decisions. But in the end, things turn out differently, but okay. And that is my overarching sense of the UK economy and what it means to be outside the European Union. Is it going to be the same UK that we would have seen if it stayed inside? No. Five years from now, when we look back, I am totally convinced that it will be very hard for us to of say, course. and if mm -hmm. they hadn't left, here's three things that would be radically different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, Felix, you're hitting on something that I've really felt for a long time about Brexit, which is the debate became so heated and so vitriolic about the dire consequences of either mm -hmm. outcome that it just didn't conform with reality. You know, as you're suggesting, which is the stakes are large. It matters. Trading is hard and small and medium enterprises are going to suffer because of these things. But it became this massive, massive issue 
which was far out of whack with, I think, actual reality. Now, in part, that's because it captures so many ideas that I think are really important to people, mm-hmm, being able mm-hmm. to live anywhere and work anywhere in Europe and move anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that feels like a loss. I feel like you, Felix, I think that mm-hmm. we became somehow so convinced of the gravity of this event, far in excess of what its real importance might turn out to be. That doesn't mean it's going to be good, but it's not going to be the end of the world, nor was staying in the EU going to be the best thing ever either. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I hear you both saying in terms of the sort of semi-permanent frictions and changes in business models and subsidiaries going across the Atlantic to try to manage the fact that these borders are real, is this idea that it really perhaps wasn't a referendum on EU membership at all the vitriol connected to it. Mm -hmm. It was a referendum on lots of things, including EU membership. It was a referendum on globalization, a referendum on immigration, a referendum on multiculturalism, a referendum on a wide range of things. So maybe it's revealing some bigger divide more than it is some set of enormous consequences. I think part of what you're putting your finger on that's very deep, Browie, is that these elections, referenda, but also elections that happen more periodically, have become weighted with this sense that the world is in the balance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. there's an entire cluster of things that are in the balance. It's not just this prime minister or that president, it is our whole world. And right. this whole cluster of values is in the balance. Now, sometimes that is true, but often it feels like politics has taken this prominence in our dialogue that is far greater than the impacts. And that's okay, but for the fact that it creates all these kinds of distorted decisions and people end up Mm -hmm. weighting these decisions in ways they shouldn't. Thinking then about what are the important steps for the UK to sort of make the best out of the situation they have, I would probably focus on two things. One is, to your last point, me here the management of these adjustment costs. Mm -hmm. So say if I'm a small business and now I'm losing my export markets overnight, what can you do to help out with all these complicated bureaucratic procedures? We've seen some really interesting private sector activity already where new companies spring up that help you do the exporting and all of this. It would be really terrible if you left and then the people who voted Mm -hmm. in favor of leaving because they are in all likelihood are the ones who are going to get hit the worst. For sure, right. If they felt even greater bitterness, because yet again, the government doesn't help them out in a difficult situation. So that's a first really big task. And then London has, it has a really enviable position in fintech. Mm -hmm. Like, what can you build on the base of that talent that you have in the city? It has a really enviable position in artificial intelligence related to some of the work at the elite universities in the UK. What can you build on that? And I think there's probably a small, but some sort of government role to think about we left because we didn't like many of the EU things but the fact remains the single biggest issue is low growth right not the UK not the European economies they don't have much to show in terms of growth and so now that you're quote-unquote liberated from all the Brussels regulations where are these sectors where you can invest and get growth and encourage business investment Mm -hmm. many of the kind of core features that one could imagine for the UK success are intact. 
a higher education system that is still mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. envy of the world, research that is still at the forefront of a lot of things, the English language, the kind of ability to be a cosmopolitan home to a lot of people in the world. That's all there. And so there is, I think, amidst this mm-hmm. also a huge opportunity. And the way they kind of look towards that, unfortunately, again, happening in the middle of COVID. <laughs> so hard to kind of yeah. think about how you mobilize on it, but it does feel like it's an enormous opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if you both think in 20 years, is it more likely that the UK has rejoined the EU or that another country <laughs> has left the EU? Mm. Obviously, neither might happen, but <laughs> which do you consider to be more likely? I love this question. I think the probability that the European Union would let the United Kingdom back in is so low, primarily because it was a mistake to let them in in the first place because they don't understand the point of the European project, which is not that the European communities is like a glorified free trade zone. Right. It is a project for political integration and economic integration in a very deep way, which is not what they signed up for, which is, I think, part of the story of the Brexit, which is like, actually, we didn't mean that we really want to do what France and Germany want to do. Like, that is definitely not what we want. And so this ever closer union business, no, 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 no. We wanted to like sell our stuff and buy some stuff. (laughs) And so like in the coming years with, I think, deepening integration, it will become even clearer that what Europe wants, the European project, is not what the UK wants. Right, interesting. And at the same time, I think it's also now less likely that someone else will leave. Right. So this whole business is about, well, we have to think about equivalence and maybe we'll give it, maybe we won't give it. Mm-hmm. I think in part, it's a signal to everyone else who's still inside. Yeah. You know, Italy, if you come along, or Greece, if you come along, mm-hmm. you have less leverage than the UK. And yep. we made the UK suffer quite a bit. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. interesting. Well, we'll see how this unfolds in the coming months and years, but it is most definitely a new reality for Europe and for the United Kingdom. Mm. Yeah. So, recommendations. Felix, what do you got? So, I have a recommendation that's related to film and I love going to film festivals Mm -hmm. where you see the kinds of movies that you wouldn't normally see, where you're reminded that, yes, there is the big machinery, Hollywood, Bollywood, Hong Kong, but there are also so many other countries that produce movies that just feel somehow different. And in my view, film festivals are Mm. one of the best ways to see these kinds of films. It's become far easier to go to film festival. You could never, ever get to because they're really far from where you live. Mm -hmm. And so I've gone to now five or six that are really out of the way. I would never have traveled there. I would never have seen these movies. And my recommendation is really, if you look at the website of the New York Film Academy, Mm -hmm. they have a list of upcoming film festivals. And then you can click through and you can see the opportunities that you have to see the movies. So if that's your thing, if you're interested in a virtual visit to a film festival, New York Film Academy is your best bet. That's a great one. I love that idea of something that is made accessible because of the moment we're in, as opposed to thinking about all the things that are inaccessible to us. Rawi, what do you got? No, I love that one. Mine is about doing physical therapy and personal training on Zoom. Mm. So... 
this is not the interesting part of the story, but for many years I had a bad back and I was going to have surgery. And then I met this genius physical therapist who lives near my house. His name is Kevin Wagner. And he basically fixed me wow. with a set of exercises and yeah. training program over the course of a year or so. And when the pandemic hit, one of the moments of real crisis I experienced was like, what am I going to do without access to the genius Kevin Wagner? Like, how am I going to keep this up? Mm -hmm. And so was he about like, could we keep this up somehow on Zoom? And we have. Huh. It's been oh, okay. not quite as good, of course, but really, really great. And the discovery that it's possible to reach the people who help take care of you, on whom you rely in a sort of physical sense. Yeah. The broader point that, you know, for those of us who are missing access to the people who help keep ourselves like healthy and keep our bodies functioning the right way, we can still do that. That's great. Wow. Nice. I nice. want to check out Kevin Wagner. I, you I should check. Be, <laughs> yeah. I might need some help. <laughs> so I have a recommendation that I think just tells you everything you need to know about the difference between Felix and me, which is Felix <laughs> is recommending oh the New York Film Academy and mind thing is so lowbrow. So as a parent, sometimes you have to watch kids' movies and they're just terrible sometimes. And you have to watch them over and over oh, again. Many, many times. If I have to watch Parent Trap again, I'm going to shoot myself. <laughs> but then once in a while, something happens and you're like, I can't believe I never watched this movie. It's so good. And so for anyone who has never seen it, which I assume is maybe nobody, but if you have never seen it, or if you want to see it again, Ratatouille is- Oh my gosh, oh, such a good movie. It is yeah. one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> and it is such a spectacular movie. I mean, obviously the animation is brilliant, totally. but the plot and the meaning and the characters, I was just stunned. It's amazing. It's yeah. just fantastic, right? Yeah. And then, as you may have followed, there is now a movement to create Ratatouille the musical. Huh. Oh, so I didn't know So what that. happened in October and December is, this is like a TikTok thing, Felix. This is like totally up your alley. Um, <laughs> this woman <laughs> recorded a song that was kind of based on the movie and she recorded it at a slightly higher pitch, so it sounded like a rat. And it just took off on TikTok. And before you knew it, lots of creative types who are sitting at home, not doing enough work because they haven't been able to, started to create a musical around Ratatouille. Wow. And it came together. And now there's talk about a Broadway production. That's amazing. That's awesome. So the song that came out on TikTok is really fantastic and super catchy. And now it's going to become a musical. So I've gone from somebody who is like, oh God, I have to watch this movie uh, like Parent Trap again. <laughs> and now I've been opened up to the possibility of a movie like Ratatouille. So I, I recommend it. Ratatouille to anyone and everyone. Yeah. Love it. Okay, good. There you go. That's it for tonight. Thank you for listening. This has been After Hours on the HBR Podcast Network.
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.